morning. It is nine o'clock here in California. I am Francis Savignan, the founder and CEO of ePartrade. With me uh, is Judy Kin, the co-founder of ePartrade. Good morning, Judy. How are you? Good morning. Good morning. And then the wonderful Jeff Hammond, who is going to be uh, hosting our webinar. Hello, Jeff. How are you? Good, good morning, everyone uh, from the East Coast. How are things on the West? Uh, things are great. We right. actually had a pretty amazing week, right, Judy? Yeah, yeah. We are approaching 10,000 attendees on our technical webinars. I don't think I shared that with you, Jeff. And we have a slew of new businesses coming on board. Dart, JE Pistons, Weissco, Diamond, Manly, Competition Suspension, Pit Logic, Jacks. It just goes on and on. So it's been a big week. Yeah, absolutely. Congratulations. So yeah, remember, Jeff, we asked you a couple of weeks ago, says, do you know how many uh, webinars we produced? And we started to count. And so this is episode 97. And when we started back in June last year, what we did is uh, started to count how many people we have registered per episode. And we're getting close to 10,000. So <laughs> that's a pretty damn good number, isn't it? It, it really is. And, and again, it's a, it's a big tribute to the fact of the platform itself. When you created it, uh, you did it right. And I think you listen to a lot of your uh, customers and, and people that have bought into, the, into what you have created here. And now it's gotten better and better and better. It's a lot like with these webinars we've been doing. We started out with, an, with the idea of an industry show for a week. And from that right there, all of a sudden, we jumped on a rocket ship that went straight from the earth to the moon overnight. And you know, we've been shooting at the moon, I guess, uh, ever since then. They've been fun to do. They've been very informative. Uh, if you've been on, the, been listening and following us, or if you're for the first time joining us, welcome. But more importantly is, I think earlier, and I want to touch on this, I think we got a second, is uh, I want to say good morning uh, to, to Ricky and, and those who are already in there. Ricky's uh, from Alaska. I know he's already he's already watching his own. Glad to have him. So all of you that, that are anticipating and participating each and every week or on a regular uh, time schedule on Wednesday, man. We really appreciate you coming on board. Thank you, Jeff. Thank you. So I'm getting a signal from our producer, Reed Keneski, that uh, we're going to be bringing on our uh, guest today. Uh, and uh, I see John uh, popping up. And I think- I'm going to unmute myself. Let me get my uh, audience and going. There you are. Excellent. Good morning, go. John. And we should be getting Kenneth. Uh, I see his name popping up. Good morning, John. Good morning. Good morning. Oh, hey, okay. excellent. Nice to see you, Jeff. <laughs> Good morning, sir. How are you doing? I'm well, thank you. There well, we are. Excellent. So, Jeff, you are in charge. We'll see you guys in the next hour. Thank yeah, you very much. Yeah, sounds Judy. great. Sounds great. Thank you very much, Francis and Judy. Um, John, good morning. Like we said earlier, hope you're doing well today and, you know, glad to have you as being a part of this uh, webinar today on ePartrate. And again, a great company that you're the president of. Very excited about that, I'm sure. Uh, yes. But let me ask you real quick. I mean, pretty bolsterous and, and in your face, they call it the damn best. Okay. <laughs> I mean, let's, I mean, I have no problem because you can back it up. But I think a lot of people might say, well, how, did, how did you do that? Why did you do that? Well, you know, next month, this company will be 52 years old, which makes me also next month, I'm going to be 70. So I, I, I've gone through a lot of um, human things as well. When I started the company, I was one month out of high school in the town which I lived, Poughkeepsie. And it was a local automotive machine shop. As any 18-year-old boy would have been in 1969, especially when, you know, I was doing good work and, and progressive in the area, I thought I was the best. So in, in the beginning, answering the phone was just, I did answer the phone because the company originally started out with Dutch's Automotive Machine. And I did say Dutch's Automotive Machine when I got on the phone, but that wore out very quickly. So I abbreviated that to DAM. Then probably about in, the, in my early 20s, and I was looking for a logo because you know decals were just beginning to be important then. Uh, one of my mentors, uh, Danny Jessel, before he was Jessel Company, Danny had a company called CMS. 
And I used to ride down there every weekend to see Danny and pick up small parts and decals and logoing, what they call now, um, you know, these marketing and branding. That was really, really just beginning in the early 70s. And so um, in attempts to have a branding for my name, I took the DIM, which people are now used to be saying on the phone. I put across the top, the, and across the bottom, best. And, and, and I felt, <laughs> I genuinely, I, you know, my world is very small and things change over time. I laugh about it now. So as, you know, Danny progressed off and got Jessel and moved from calling competition machine service to using his last name, as my company began to be less local, and, you know, this is still going back to the 70s. Right. We came to sell products across the United States. I hired a firm. And asked them, should I use my last name? Should I go Satterfield? And this company, if I duck a little bit, move to the side. <laughs> it wasn't cheap. This is, you know, early 70s. Figures what $35,000 was worth in the early 70s. They gave it this brand. And they said, John, you've been using it for this many years. People recognize it. So we're going to mature the logo. And, you know, has it been a good decision since? It's been very hard to live up up to there's been times when i've been humbled by it there's been people that had personal criticisms of it but now after 52 years the one thing i can tell you every day jeff without hesitation anybody that knows me i try my very best every day truly and genuinely so living up to that original child uh, appearance of things is it's been a monumental effort and i'm happy now to say that it, you know i'm maybe not be the best but I certainly do put my best effort in. Well, I mean, if somebody gets really hard on you, I'll tell you what I would suggest. <laughs> and that and that was be what you just told me. You could take the D off and put my, my damn best. Yeah. Because that's as good as you can get in my book. I mean, you know, you're giving me your best every time you get ready to do a product or we're going to talk about, you know, what, what my needs are. If you're giving me your best, then it's not, it's not bragging, folks. It's a fact. And that I think that's where I, I want to really jump off on right now and start saying, as you, as you were evolving, can you give us some idea what you found to be the most important and critical thing that you learned at a very early age in your business that you have, you know, has basically stuck with your business and stuck with you for these 52 well, years? Use a, I'll divide business over time, but I'm going to address business separately than performance. Okay. As a business person... And uh, Kenneth called me a little bit before, but I, I genuinely believe this. Uh, my business is always seek the skill of the least skilled employee. And I've had to really be conscious of that through its growth. So, it's, you know, we've had to make business decisions along the way because we're working with highly skilled, highly professional clients. So I've had to take and change the process and, and Jeff, I took a few months, actually more than a month. I took more, you know, an hour and a bit yesterday to watch the seminar to, to know who you were. Or I have not met you personally. We may have passed, um, but you did in social media. So I, I looked at that. You know, now I've got, you know, one month under 52 years of business. I have been through some stuff. <laughs> and one of the things that I can't and I have tried to do is make my business be, and I use the thing, you know, the McDonald's uh, business plan where you try to sell, make a dollar in a lot of parts. Well, it, it, it just is impossible for this kind of business. You know, when I'm working with professionals at the highest levels, like when I was doing NASCAR and I would be at a lot of the races. And at the time I was leasing carburetors to 80% of the NASCAR teams. And, and, you know, and after my injuries, that's when I started to, you know, manufacture carburetors themselves. So that has only been going on since maybe 2002, where I'm actually a manufacturer. Well, I realized, and I've tried to manipulate those pieces of the puzzle to try to get more, more customer base, larger number. And I find as I've increased my number, I, I, by the nature of that, I've decreased the quality of my service. So okay. business today is a balance, an important balance to make sure I have the proper amount of time for the customer. That's, that's probably more important than the part itself. You know, I spend a lot of times, I always keep my notebook around, even during this conversation. I'm a very good note taker. I'll interrupt the customer to tell them I am taking notes 
and only to ask him to explain it. And I have lots of notebooks that break around me right now. I have three computers. So that is a very important thing. So when you're dealing with NASCAR engine builders and tuners or professional drag racers, they may not be scientists and most of them are not. So be able to explain to them at their level what, what, what they need to see that's important. And, and I used to be a part of the AETC that Superflow used to put on, presented there. And I have some you know, C, CDs and DVDs on some pretty involved subjects. So I've been training and studying all these years. We focused on fuel systems because, you know, even though I've developed many other areas, uh, after my injuries, it was the only one that was left that I could do. I, I was uh, at that point a world-class triathlete too. I was on a bicycle training run. A car crossed the highway and hit me head on. So it really busted me up. And during that, you know, recovery time is when I was designing the main houses and things and moving towards that because I went from a carburetor modifier to a carburetor manufacturer, okay. which is different. So, you know, so at that point, I decided I was going to take all the things I had learned from carburetors in the past. And the other thing is that people have to make conscious choice. When you're modifying somebody else's product, how much time are you willing to spend to explain to a customer that your modifications are better than someone else's. So I would go to the, to the uh, PRI shows and stuff. And, you know, over the years, I realized that that takes, even if I really genuinely feel that I'm doing a good job, I have testing facilities here, you know, I'm at the racetrack with the highest levels, I'm communicating. The amount of time it took to make the sale eventually made it not worth making the sale. You're talking business now, so that's yeah, a constant decision. I'm, I don't, I don't do things by mistake. I make mistakes, but I don't do them by mistake. There's a difference. So I make a conscious decision. Yeah, I can be wrong. My conscious decision was it would take less energy if my product performed better. We even made them red and so people could see them because you you're selling a higher poly carburetor. Everybody's selling a higher carburetor. It's hard to see the difference. We made them red. Some people like it. Now we have you know, multiple colors. And there is no current technology that we're using in the damn best carburetor that's similar to others. We have a repositioned Venturi, which means our Venturi is above the booster. Have a patent on that. We have shear technology, which is in the in, inside the metering block, which is what we used in NASCAR. So you're shearing fuel at the rate of consumption, which is a pretty amazing thing. So you're going to be able to shear the fuel, which exposes the hydrocarbons at the rate of consumption. So in our first test in NASCAR, when you're looking for fuel economy, it's really exposing the hydrocarbons. And, you know, and we, we work with some of the people that you may know. Terry Elledge was the Bill Davis team. We were at Indianapolis for a couple of weekends. And I know a lot of people I well that you definitely know. And the things that was really interesting, NASCAR can't run data acquisition during the race but they can during testing. One of the most amazing, at that time, uh, Dave Blaney and Ward Burton were the drivers and two different drivers you couldn't, couldn't ask for. So great example of, of things to learn. And we're at Indianapolis during a two week alternate test. And by watching in time live, I realized that during, when, they, when, when uh, Ward would close the throttle, Dave was a lot smoother. When Ward would close the, close the throttle, that the fuel consumption went up not down. That was breathtaking because they had real-time fuel turbines, so they were watching in real-time the fuel consumption. And back then, this is going back a bit, you used to see these huge flames shoot out the exhaust because yep. once the raw fuel hit the exhaust, it would light and these six-foot, eight-foot flames would come flying out. <laughs> you know, and like most people at the time, not having that level of uh, that acquisition to be informed with, I didn't realize it was because of closed fuel consumption. The idle circuit wasn't made for those high differentials. So, you know, there we learned about closed fuel savings. So all of these went into the, to the carburetor manufacturing. So as I developed the carburetor manufacturing during my injuries, I wanted the carburetor to sell itself. So I worked really hard for it to sell itself. The unfortunate part about that is the technology was beginning to strip my customer base. Even though they were professionals, they were not used to seeing the air fuel ratios, the BFCs that we're capable of running. 
So I had to teach him. One of the things I was going to bring up about the fuel. Most people put the fuel in the tank and they don't understand the fuel they run. So part of what I needed to do with the professional is to explain to them the difference between, and, and, and we've had to do this for a consultant for other companies, between octane and distillation. Okay. Most everybody is aware of the term octane. But almost the same amount of people are completely, you know, I, I don't, I don't like to use the word ignorant, but just not aware, unaware, unaware of distillation in relative to fuel. All right. So I, I think that they can allow me to bring something on the screen. I don't remember exactly how screen share. Yeah, if you can do that, go ahead and give it a try. We won't hold it against you. Like I say, all right. we ain't trying. Then can you see this? Gaining. Can you see it? I don't see it. No, sir. No, okay, let me back up the screen here again. Try again. All right. Oh, let me make this smaller. I got to figure out how to share it now. Here we go. Um, share. Can you see it now? Gotcha, boss. I okay. can't see it. All right, but I have to get used to this. I don't do this often either. <laughs> well, this is when I give my seminars here at work. This is the very, this is where we start. Even though it, you know we're about fuel delivery devices, that's what we're really talking about. Understanding the fuel is very important. When I was an outside consultant for Texco Research Center, which is in Glenham, New York, which is about 15 minutes from me south, I was there for 15 years, and I had my business here as well. One of the things I had them do. At that time, the racing fuel we had here was CAM2. If you remember, not CAM2, oh, yeah. I'm sorry, Union 76. Union yeah. 76 was the fuel I've used that both All right, well, that would be the horizontal line that's there. And the, the diagonal line that you're seeing on the screen is a conventional unleaded fuel that was at the same time. So well, I, I explain to people, if we take a temperature, the temperature would be on the screen to the right where it says temperature. And if we were at 270 degrees um, intake temperature and you know, intake charge temperature, the high octane fuel would no longer exist. So that's what led to, to detonation and things when, and, you know, or they had um, used to have in our days vapor lock when the fuel would be completely vaporized and it would no longer be a gasoline, it would be just a vapor. So coming back from the end point is where the performance of the fuel comes. So you can actually have a lower octane fuel. And this is how they extend it today and give it octane is by extending the end point, adding heavier ends to the fuel. So by changing the rate it, dis it distills, a lower octane fuel can still have what we call octane value. It's not the end point. It still has a, a distance to its final burn. So, so that's what we teach first, is even though you may have a high octane fuel, if it distills early over a short, like 20 degrees, you're, in this case, you're over 20 degrees, you're distilling 80% of the fuel. Temperature is important there. And now today, NASCAR is running much higher temperatures. And if you look at fuel, which I don't have in front of me, I am just sure the fuel has a much later endpoint. So understanding the fuel becomes a very big part of designing a fuel system. You know, we have different fuels. Let me just see if I can stop the share now. Here we go. All right. Back. Good job. Good job. Okay. So, so that's what the chart is about. Under, and, and, I, and we do it here regularly. Every time a customer calls, one of the things I do in my customer notes, not this notebook, is I want to know what fuel he's running because the carburetor also is designed around the fuel. It's specific gravity, it's vaporization rate, also what they call the uh, uh, vapor point. So we're actually designing the carburetor to fit the very fuel, not only the circumstances, but the fuel that they're going to run. So I'll take a breath there because I, I can definitely run on for a bit. <laughs> uh, no, that's good. I mean, that's good. Because again, you know, uh, we got Chris already asking, he said, when you buy endpoint, do you mean the temperatures at which the fuel completes the distillation, this distillation process? Well, the end point technically is at 90%. 
The last 10% is when it turns to a residue. So when you're looking at a distillation sheet, usually not uh, endpoint is considered the 90% distilled. And usually you'll say it just tag up at the end. And usually that's the real heavy ends of the fuel. So when they add e ethanols or heavy ends, you know, when you look at the tar in the pan, that would mm -hmm. be the tar. So when you're looking at fuels, and this is when we, we change the technology, we're forced to change technology in our carburetors and move more towards shear. And actually this happened in um, NASCAR and Bush carburetors as well, because when they went away from the union and started going to other fuels, especially when they went into unleaded fuels, stripping the hydrocarbons became very important for, you know, these burns are very fast. So if they have a high, fast burn, controllable burn, you need to strip the hydrocarbons away. So we moved into shear technology, both in the metering block, you know, when you have to run a, what we call a modified other, you're running a holly carburetor or something else, we go inside the metering block and we have shearing going on. So as the rate of consumption, as it goes up the main well, it's the fuel is being sheared. You're, you're, you're putting air in to separate the, the droplets, but you're shearing the fuel. Okay, let me stop you right here then. So make sure I understand here. Mm -hmm. If I'm a competitor out there and I'm listening to John Satterfield here, understanding my fuel is the beginning of understanding what I need to do with a carburetor. Correct. So you need to make sure you're not just going out and, and going to any hot rod place and just grabbing any kind of fuel. You need to be understanding, I'm, I'm assuming, specific gravity and, and, and whatever octane rate and how that goes with your uh, temperature curve, all that, mm -hmm. how that, all that matches up. I mean, it goes right back to mathematics. You're gonna have to do a little bit of math to understand right. where you are. Well, at least look at the temperatures. Let me just give you, for instance, because a lot of it has to do with people say things regularly. They say, for instance, we dynoed one way, but it didn't race well. Well, when you're on a dyno, you, you, we'll just take a circle track engine, because a lot of people are familiar with that. You may be running on a dyno, unless you've got an endurance test today, they now have endurance tests, but a typical dyno run may last six or seven seconds. I mean, it's not a long time, and you don't really get close throttle testing. So something like a fairly flat distillation curve may give you the greatest dyno number. And because within the temperature that you're using, because as the air is coming in, it's also a heat of vaporization is cooling your intake track. So you're actually lowering the temperature in the intake track based on the heater's vaporization of the fuel. So it'll tolerate that fuel. You go into the racing circumstances where the engine temperature is elevated. Now you're heat soaking everything. If you're in a circle track, you go to starting, you know, flag track, you close the throttle and you go to turn. Well, now all the exhaust during overlap is going up and superheating the manifold. So when you step back into the thing, your, your elevated intake charge temperature is going to be far beyond that fuel. So when they step in and they say it's lean and it's hesitation, well, that's just because the fuel dis literally disappeared. It's, you know, past endpoint. It may not exist you know, in the engine at that point because of the elevated engine temperatures. See, drag racing does not have that issue. Drag racing is wide open, so you're not having the exhaust come up, you know, during the race, superheating the intake charge so that you're, you're distilling the, the fuel with the engine's temperature. So right. knowing your environment, so, so a customer, and this is where it becomes important, customers say, well, I want to dine on this fuel, but you have to make sure you let them know by the temperatures of your fuel, when you go to the racetrack, another fuel may be necessary. So you have to begin to educate your customer because they always ask why. You know, my favorite question is why? <laughs> well, the more you learn and you've been there, the more you can advise them correctly. And the same thing when you're changing the styles of fuel. Because then you'll say, well, a customer's complaining, my engine's running a little warmer. Well, if he's going to go to an E85 fuel, that fuel appreciates, because it's long distillation, a little higher elevated temperature. The same thing that happens with your street vehicles. You know, when they add E85, the reason why that increases the octane is it stretches out the distillation. It's longer to the end point. So knowing this and being able to advise your customer is very important. And, and, I, and I've moved away from the, using the term carburetor all the time to fuel delivery device. Okay. And the reason being, and I, and I have it really close here, 
more than 12 years ago, maybe close to 15 years ago, I could get the date line. We came up with a replacement for the flow pole. This is an electronic jet. So we dealt with Scooter Brothers and Fast when we first got there. And this is back before the, as I was watching a seminar the other day where people had throttle bodies and boost this. Way before that, we had an electronic jets for carburetors. So I want to accelerate when you're having the electronic control in your fuel delivery device. Because today, and, and I have designed these fuel systems, you can have a multi-fuel device that can shear these droplets smaller than you can use them. And how do we know? Because we can create incipient detonation based on that temperature. Remember the temperature and you elevated when you're driving around, you're transient right. driving as you're driving around, your intake charge temperature is going up. So your transient driving can lead you into hesitation. That's how you feel it in the car. The car doesn't go forward. You feel this hesitation. All right. Well, that's actually the fact that your droplets have gotten so small. So controlling droplet size and temperature is a huge part of the fuel delivery system today. So transients, I'm, you know, anybody talks to me, I'm really big on transients. You know, there's not many circumstances where people are driving it wide open. So we, we want to make sure that the transients are good. So we look at all of those things, the application, and then we bring forth the fuel delivery device. Okay. Now, Rich Tomei, he was wanting to uh, understand a little better. Are we talking about how much the weather and the outside temperature has an effect on it also? I mean, all that, that all goes into the equation, right? Yes, it is. And this is a great thing about that. One of my favorite questions, as we've made the fuel droplets smaller, they become less weather sensitive. Because as they're going through the shearing process, the two things that we learned from that process, and this is when you have the difference between aeration and emulsion. I'm gonna explain that because this becomes right to the point. When we first did our shearing in the metering block, we also have a gas turbine patent for jet engines. And we had to give a seminar to the uh, jet industry. So I made visualizations of the difference between shearing and standard emulsion. So I did a clear tube, both the same, both had them in a, in a you have to understand, this is, this is me now. <laughs> I took a fish tank because I'm moving liquid. I put the I... vacuum source on a sealed fish tank. I put the two examples of the main wells, one with shearing and one with standard emulsion in the side. And I had these go off into the fuel source, which we were using uh, odorless mineral spirits at the time, same thing I use today. And, and we put the vacuum source on the fish tank. So when you're showing it, people, are, if you show it individually, they'll always say, well, this was the difference. You put the vacuum source on the fish tank, so the vacuum on both wells would be the same. And so that when it drew through, you could see the shearing difference and the standard emulsion. Well, what happens is standard, uh, we call standard emulsion, actually aerated fuel. The air wanted to stay on one side of the main well, and the fuel wanted to stay on its on the same side with the what jet was. It always wants to take the shortest path. So there really was very little mixing in the standard main well. Mm -hmm. But when I went over to the when because it, it was drawing at the same time, it would actually go through and look like a string of pearls when it went through the fuel delivery from the shearing, and then you have air coming in. So once it shears, the air coming in will allow the droplet to separate. So it wasn't just making small droplets. It was making sure they were evenly separated. So we're working on two items at once, shearing the fuel mm -hmm. and then allowing air to keep it evenly spaced. So we went from aeration to true emulsion. Now in our good carbureted, we'll say a VP racing fuel with fairly flat, we run BSFCs in the low 30s, like 32. That's where we've decided to level off right now. So as we've made certain breakthroughs, we've had to stop and let the engine builder and technology kept, catch up to us. Same thing is like when we're pro stock and we're tuning pro stock car teams. And we've done a lot of, uh, of those over the years. When we get to 13.5, we make a little line. We say, okay, now we have to go to the engine assembler, the engine builder, and we have to look at under crown color. 
and see where they are in underground piston color and cooling to make sure that we can go beyond. Because I believe there is, at this point, there's no, no limited lean amp burn. If you're trying to make more cylinder pressure, a quicker burn, you have to go leaner. You have to over-oxygenate the hydrocarbon. That's why they use nitrous and other. More oxygen around the hydrocarbons. So the higher the piston speed, the quicker the burn means you need to over-oxygenate the hydrocarbons. So that becomes, you know, now looking at the engine build and heat rejection. So you're talking about a carburetor, but you have to have this back, back information in order to help the engine building. How are we going to make this quicker? Well, right during that, we look at underground temperature, uh, color. And, you know, when I say to some of the people, I'm not always a fan of these ultra thin rings because you're, you're looking at heat rejection from the piston. You know, even in a drag race, you have to make the other end of the track. Circle track, you have to finish the race. You, you know, you have to get rid of the heat. So part of, you know, getting a higher level of tuning performance is now you have to look at the, the balance of temperatures. Back, well, guess what? That sheet again. The balance of temperatures. You can't get rid of the heat. You're bringing in this new intake charge. It's hitting the parts, rubbing around on the parts. Becomes more volatile. You can't right. bring a more powerful charge in the next one because the last one has just not gotten rid of the heat yet. Okay, excuse me right here. You used the word bringing. I'm going to call a little timeout, and I'm going to bring in Mr. Kenneth Abbott from Abbott Heads. Yep. Glad to have you this morning. Uh, John's been carrying the load right now, talking about engines, and here's a guy that uh, I think has a pretty good understanding of what it takes to get an engine together. And uh, I would dare say you guys have probably spent many a time on the phone discussing fuel and how your, his uh, fuel management system and how your heads and engines kind of all go hand in hand. Is that right, Mr. Abbott? That is correct. Since I've got to know John and I originally got to him, I was running, uh, working on some top sportsman stuff for my own program. Uh, I have a top sportsman STN, like showing in my background. My son drives it. We have a, a 565 conventional motor, two carburetors, two of John's pro stock uh, pilot or dominators. And uh, whenever I first started researching we were having issues in low gear because the thing would pull three g's on the start line and my son could feel we were having issues little stutters and it was intermittent in low gear and i started researching and found out john makes what he calls his pro stock metering blocks and the jets are actually pulling out of the rear of the boat i said this is what we need because i dealt with some other manufacturers and gone back and forth with them and talked to them about building me some metering blocks that way. And they all kind of poo-pooed it away. But once I got to dealing with John and my self-education of years of running carburetors, John has addressed all these issues that I was seeing in the Hollies and modified Hollies. He's corrected nearly all the issues that I found in his, even in the volume flow, we used to run Texas Pro Stock. <laughs> And we ran into it running Q16 at first and some C44 fuels, the really, what they used to call rocket fuel in pro stock before they outlawed it, and C25. And you know, we ran into regular Holly metered blocks, would not supply enough fuel. The idle tubes in there would restrict the flow, you know, and you could change jets and it never would change anything. So uh, once I learned that, and I have other friends that's in the pro stock world that ran carburetors that I know and talk to them and their struggles, of, you know, feeding fuel to a pro stock motor. John is could have really picked their program up. You know, his, his boosters are 250 pins. They'll flow more fuel than, you know, the, the size of the pins and his metering blocks, everything will flow enough fuel to actually feed a motor making However, 1400 horsepower. Our 565 makes 901424 out of a 565. We've run 430s. We outrun a lot of 660, 700 inch motors that we race against with a little 565. But John is so smart, not only on fuel, but he also knows, understands the engine part, the car part. He can help you in a lot of areas, and he's really stepped up my program since I've gotten to know him over the last five or six years. 
and uh, yeah, and he it's just he can really educate you if you'll pay attention and listen. He's helped me a lot. Even in the silver head department, things that you get into, you know, I do a lot of stuff, drag race mostly, but also pull truck motors and things and uh, learned a lot of lessons to make a lot of power. Well, that's why I say you two guys make a perfect pair then because, like I say, John was bringing me up to speed on the basic 101s about you got to start with good fuel and understanding the fuel and how it works within, the, within itself. Cause that's the way, you know, that's the initial where you're going to find your power. If you can't understand how to get that fuel and control it and get the most out of it, you're leaving basically horsepower on the table and creating problems based off of what you're telling me, you know, you weren't able to get your fuel you needed when you needed it. And that created, you know, a, a stagger or a stutter or hiccup, whatever you want to call it, whatever the, the engine builder wants to determine. But the main thing is it costs you speed. Yes, sir. The first time we put those carburetors on, my, my son, I didn't get to go to the race the very first time he bolted a bone motor. It was just a conventional headed 532 at the time. But he told me I need to give him a hug and a kiss. And I said, what? <laughs> I said, who? He said, John. I still got the text. This thing picked up like 460 <laughs> foot just right out of the box. <laughs> well, the thing is, is the other thing here. my son, he... Yeah. He, he, I, we've had some carburetors in the past. He wanted me to tie on the back of the dually and drag them down the highway. <laughs> yeah. But one, ahead, one, one comment I wanted to finish up on there when he was asking you about weather sensitive. When we're doing all of this shearing stuff and the emulsion, the, mm -hmm. you know, nice thing about having people race around the world and stuff, our carburetors are pretty much weather insensitive from 500 feet below at Virginia to a not very nice day at Denver. The most change that's been made for, for instance, a pro stock going from one track to another is a 2000s airbody change on the high speed and a 2000s airspeed on the, on the idle. That's a fairly weather insensitive car at the highest level. Well, see, I'm glad you brought that up because that was one of the things I was kind of curious about is that, you know, you talk about, weather and, and being around, you know, racing all my life. I mean, I know how sensitive, you know, read the plugs, you do this, you do that, you know, you're trying to get everything perfect and a lot like, you know, and I'm going to use this a motorcycle, for example, mm -hmm. you know, you take a Harley Davidson and you start riding in the mountains with a, with an old style carburetor and, and you know, that's some gun. It would, it's, <laughs> it's, it just wouldn't run right. You know, right. so, I mean, a fuel injector deal come up through there and just keep on getting. And you think that your carburetors or your fuel uh, system would be just as sensitive maybe as that. But you're telling me that it's not. So, I mean, that to me has got to be uh, music to my ears because, again, you're not you're not going to be with me in California. You're not going to be with me in, in, in Denver, Colorado. Mm -hmm. But. I don't have to do a lot of changing. I'm not guessing about what I need to do. It's what I guess is where I'm going with this idea. Right. Well, let me get to the exact thing. The difference between a carbureted Harley, excuse me, a carbureted Harley and a fuel injected, we're back to the transients. Mm -hmm. Being that I do manufacture motorcycle carburetors as well, I wouldn't use a standard butterfly carburetor for a motorcycle because transients are very, 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 very bad in a butterfly booster carb. What we do for one, it's heavy in transients. One fellow you rent Ricky's from Alaska, we're gonna be doing uh, you know, Lycoming aircraft engine carburetor and fuel systems. We're gonna be changing them over from updraft butterfly booster carbs to side draft slides. Because slides, now you're taking a carburetor and you can an electronic, but you're, we're just gonna take a throttle controlled carburetor fuel delivery if you look at a slide and you expose it your fuel delivery at the point of the opening is going to be where the highest speed is mm -hmm. so if you go to our slide carburetor page and you'll see the fuel distribution in the slide far out seeds a butterfly booster carb so i wouldn't sell you that i would sell you a slide carburetor that delivers the fuel 
at the best rate when it's opening because you're confining the area. A butterfly carb, you got the idle and transfer on one side and you've got zero on the other. So once, once you get to the point where I'm turning the other way, you're getting enough fuel out of the main booster, you got the idle transfer on one side and the huge droplets falling from, depending on you know how it is, you know, if it's downdraft or side draft, I'll explain in a second. So you get, this is downdraft first. You get the huge droplets falling on this side and then puddling in the manifold. Motorcycle case or airplane case, you've got a side draft with a butterfly. Now the fuel has the ability, guess what? To not go in the engine whatsoever because the droplets are heavy enough and they're going to go by gravity. There's no law that says it has to go in the engine. You've got an airplane with an updraft carburetor with a butterfly and a booster. <laughs> the first thing that's on the phone ringing is the fuel falls down. It doesn't even go in the airplane. <laughs> the droplets are too big. How do I know? I watch it on my wet bench all the time. So when you're looking at the fuel daily, part of the recommendation of somebody who has a different application is making sure the fuel delivery device suits the application. I would not make a butterfly booster carb for a Harley. I wouldn't do it. Yeah. Yeah, it's good information. But I did see on your on your your uh, web page that you did do motorcycle carburetor. So figured I'd get that in there on you, see what you thought. <laughs> but uh, another good question, I got a question for you, is everybody, and Kenneth, please you know, give us your opinion on this too. I know that it may be challenging with the horsepower you're using, but how much better or how important is it to use, you got the engine down, I know a lot of people are getting the basic baseline on their, on their product, okay? But how important is it for them to take that information and go to a chassis dyno to, to do cross-referencing. Can you get good uh, testing and results and stuff from a chassis dyno that, that will help you when you get to the track to kind of be ahead of the rest of the competition? Well, I don't have any experience with a chassis dyno. I don't. Uh, Too never, much power. I know once I get to the racetrack, I know whenever I first built this engine, I'm running and we had dining up, looking at brake specifics and, you know, tuning it up with dyno. When I got to the racetrack, I had to go and totally change the tune-up major because, well, I had run it like the dyno tune-up in the eight-mile race, and everything seemed to be fine, but I went to a quarter-mile race. I think I had it Celine trying to make the numbers on the dyno look right, but it wouldn't run in high gear. So I had to put all that fuel I pulled out on the dyno back in it then it went to running so uh you know of course you got a sealed up hood scoop you know and we're running 190 something miles an hour so that changes you know you don't have 190 mile an hour air running down that dyno scoop mm -hmm. changed it up major well, well jeff let me just comment on that things. it it uh it changed the tune up a lot at the racetrack Dinos, because you know, one of the things I when I was working with Texco, they had 200 dinos, chassis and others. So I have a little rule of thumb. The dino in each of the cases you mentioned, first it was a uh, engine dyno. I'm going to ask if it's a water brake, electric, or inertia. Each right. of those affect the engine differently. Typically, you're going to go to a chassis dyno, it's going to be inertia, and some will be water assisted. So when you're looking at how the brake functions against the engine, this is one of my favorite things. Think about taking a bike, bicycle and pedaling uphill or pedaling downhill, which is more difficult. Most people say pedaling uphill. Well, if you look at a water brake, high acceleration is relieving the resistance from the engine. So a water brake and dynoing is more like pedaling downhill. So the things you do to complement pedaling downhill won't be the same things you do to complement an engine pedaling uphill. So you have to learn, the dyno being a tool, is to how to take a water break and get it to give you the information that, for instance, an inertia dyno will when you're driving the weight. If we go to uh, the Grays, when they were running drag racing, they had an inertia dyno with a two-speed Lanco, so that they were always driving the inertia dyno. And it would you know, measure the performance through the gear change. So I believe driving a weight is more like on-track performance than running away from the resistance. Okay. You can use water brakes, but you have to learn how they teach you. 
So you have to learn the range you have to do to get, to get things, you know, normally in a gear change, you have to learn to run below it and how to make it so it runs above it. But each dyno is a good tool, but it has to be interpreted correctly. So going from one style of dyno to another will, will show different results <clears throat> by the nature of it being running away from the resistance or running towards it. Well, that makes sense when you explain it like you just did. It does make sense when you say it. Because uh, again, depending on who you're talking to, everybody's got their opinion. But you have best, that's the best understanding I've ever heard because you know, I've worked with people who've had engine dynos that were you know, inertia drive dynos, electric dynos, everything like that. And you got to, like anything, you got to establish a baseline Mm -hmm. and know how to relate back to your baseline. Mm -hmm. so. Well, one of the things is with today's level of that acquisition, what I suggest all people to do is to turn their race vehicle into an inertia dyno and get the information from in-application usage. Right? So you have G-meters that can calculate performance. You can go through the, you know, take calculated G-force, through the gearing and calculate performance because you can watch the gear, like even the first gear, you can watch the G meter go up and fall off when the horsepower falls off. So, you know, and you can put fuel turbines in there. The only thing you can't easily put into a race car is an air turbine, but probably could do that today for test runs. But to convert your race vehicle into an inertia dyno is what I think most people should do today. I want to deviate just a little bit because I feel like this is important because my daddy always taught me, you got to have two things, to get an engine to run. You got to have fuel and you got to have spark. And then we're talking a lot today about fuel. What in your, your guys experiences and opinion, um, do you need to look for to make sure you're getting enough spark to adequately fire and take the full advantage of the fuel that you are working so hard to, you know, put it in its best form to get the maximum power out of it. If, do people sometimes have a tendency not to have heavy enough wire, good enough battery, alternator? Do you run into that sometimes? Quick, the ignitions nowadays are so good. Uh, don't really see that too much. Okay. Main thing okay. on the firing is going to be, you know, if, as long as everything is mechanically okay and their wires aren't 100 years old or burning on the headers or whatever, that's really not an issue. Uh, you know, if you get into the power adder guys, customers with nitrous and blowers and things, which are becoming so prevalent nowadays, then, you know, if you got to pinch down the spark plug gaps and stuff, because it'll, so much fuel is so much in there, it can kind of snuff out a wide gap, but it's not normally a big, big issue. Okay. I'm going to mention what's electronic stuff out there nowadays. I'm going to mention the obvious. When we get to heavy fuels, for instance, and it may think this is not possible, but it is possible, diesel fuel, vegetable oils, nitromethanes are really heavy fuels moving into plasma ignition, you know, which when you, people talk about nitro and the sparks that those mags will generate, becomes necessary to puncture the fuel. So the heavier the fuel, you have to transition from a high energy spark to something that's truly more like lightning if you're getting into those heavy-ended fuels. So once again, in the construction of fuel will dictate the spark. The lighter the fuel, the higher the energy single spark. I mean, we like multiple spark. We've talked about it for years. But Crane came out with this ignition where it was high energy, one spark, poof. We dyno tested that. That was an exceptionally good ignition system. I don't think it's still made anymore. But the coil will dictate the ignition system. So when you're looking for ignition systems, make sure you're using a really high energy coil. And if you move into these heavier fuels, if somebody's dealing with heavier fuels, you know, E85s or something, mm -hmm. well then going into a different system where you're going to go to possibly a you know, I go back to because Crane made this. I think I think um, MSD does well. Is going from high energy to plasma. So if you get a really cantankerous fuel that doesn't like to get lit, then switching from high energy to plasma. Okay, good information. Well, then let me ask you a question because um, 
in my information about you, why would you, why would you say that a carburetor is a team player and not a standalone star? Well, <laughs> when I when I say it's a team player, because camshaft, thermodynamics, all have to to do with performance of the engine. You can take you know, the highest level of carburetor, put it on an engine, but the rest of the team is not happy. The carburetor is not going to perform. So when I'm, when I chose to go, you know, not just because of my injuries, but to pick one of the things that I was very versed on, you know, I, I, I'm versed on uh, kinematics and fluid dynamics. So I have a lot of subjects I'm versed on. I, I said, I want to use the rest of the information to support the fuel delivery, but it means that I have to have these high level discussions on thermodynamics engineering, you know, and I get asked regularly about, you know, rod ratios and things like that. You know, what's my opinion on that? And in uh, cam events, for instance, when you're looking at the camshaft being as part of the team player, you know, more overlap in an engine means when it idles, it's going to breathe more from the exhaust side because the exhaust valve closes after TDC on the intake stroke. So long as the exhaust valve is open, then it's not likely to draw well on the intake. It isn't going to draw some, but the fact that the exhaust valve is open, there's no resistance there, means it's going to take some in from the exhaust. The carburetor being a team player means it has to add fuel to something it didn't supply. It didn't supply the air coming in the exhaust. It only supplies the air coming through its butterflies or its slides. But I'm a team player. The camshaft said that I'm going to have air coming up the header. Well, the carb says, okay, I'll take care of that. I'll give you a little bit more fuel. Fuel delivery devices, fuel injection or electronic, we can program that in there. We can add fuel during the idle, even though the air did not come down through the throttle body or carburetor device. So when you're looking at all of the system, the carburetor has to work within the system. Fuel, temperature, valve event timing, compression. There's a lot that goes into the, the system. And a carburetor doesn't stand alone. A good carburetor isn't going to make a great engine on a bad engine. It's just not going to do that. Well, Ricky Craven is uh, part of us, our group watching this today. He told me to ask, he said, ask John about the camshaft relationship. He changed uh, on my, my, when he changed his whole view of when looking for a cam on a particular application. You remember that? Yes. Well, one of the things that I have, and I hold, hold it up here, see here, one of my Superflow conferences was the simultaneous evaluation of kinematics and fluid dynamics to increase power. That's a really good presentation to watch. I have moved away from thinking about uh, camshaft center lines. I think about the valve events open and closing, both the intake and exhaust. The center line of the lobe will be a default of having event timing. Most of the camshafts today are non-symmetrical, I mean asymmetrical cams. How they measure the center line of cam is they go 50,000 before and 50,000 after. By the nature of that, my lobe looks like this. I'm going to have a set calculated center line that it's actually not the center line of the lobe, the peak of the lobe. So, so how accurate is that? <laughs> so if I go by event timing, all right, my intake opening, my exhaust opening, wherever the, the center line of the cam will be is it falls. It's, it's a default position. And I'm going to change the camshaft by half lobes and events so that I can optimize where it opens uh, or, you know, during overlap, like I'm going to, trim, I use the word trim, the exhaust closing event so that I can draw harder from the intake side. One of the number one mistakes in an engine, is, especially if they're dyno engines and not race engines, is the exhaust closing is too late. Because when your engine is at full steam on a dyno, then the, the scavenging effect from the exhaust works well across the chamber. But in transients, or when you're easing back into the throttle or gear changing the drag car, that exhaust valve being later and later costs performance because it's drawing the exhaust back in as the piston goes down before the valve closes. 
So when we move to event timing, all right, then then we don't so much study the center line. It's a default of the events. That that's that's what Ricky. <laughs> So All right, real, real quick, we've got about five minutes left here, guys. Uh, Chris wants to know, are there distillations curves of common fuel as something that, that he can get? Is there something you're willing to share? Uh, well, I have them on all of my laptops right in front of me. I have three. All fuel manufacturers post it. BP, Cam2, all of them go right on there. I keep it as a, as a link. If, you know, if I was going to grab the camera, I could easily bring it up now because I have to compare fuels around the world. If somebody comes up with a new fuel, the first thing I ask a customer to do is, or if he has a fuel he makes himself, is to send me the distillation for the fuel. Most fuels, one of the first questions I ask every in, in every carburetor order is which fuel you're going to run because that will change the idling and the air, you know, the, the air fuel ratio I calculate carburetor on. Because mm -hmm. the heavier the fuel, the later the burn, the bigger the droplet needs to be, because it's going to take longer to distill. So all manufacturers that I'm aware of post it. Okay. It's, it's not a secret. Well, I hope that right there will help him. Um, Ken, real quick, you got, uh, you got some fans out there. Derek, All right. Derek has said, uh, hey, Ken, you're looking good, man. <laughs> All right. Yeah, Derek's my buddy. He builds my valves. Well, that's good. I'm glad. They're victory valves for a long time. They're good people and good, very good products. And uh, I just want to add a footnote on that camshaft deal about going off event timing since I've got to meet John and I've evaluated the camshaft in my engine, just making changes based on that, what I've seen. Like I said, the lobe separation is wider than what most anybody would run, but we picked up 20-something horsepower and it shows it on the track. So it, it is valid. So, uh, you know, it's time I've been following his advice, we go faster. <laughs> well, that's good to know. Because again, you know, that's what part of these, you know, these webinars are all about is dotting the I's and crossing the T's. And everybody's got opinions and everybody, you know, has got theories. And some of us, when I say some of us, you know, when you're competitors and you've been in the business and everything like that, you've learned a lot of valuable lessons. Just like, you know, like you were talking about, you had problems and you started looking for a source to get your problem fixed. And John Satterfield had what you needed. You know, yes, and it's like being a specialist and in, in, in a, in a, in a doctor. You know, you don't want to go to a, a dentist to get you, get a broke leg or getting your uh, your heart worked on. So, you know, you want to go to somebody who understands everything, the big picture. And it sounds to me, like I said, you two guys have gotten hooked up. And, John, you're, scratch, you're scratching Kenneth's back. And, Kenneth, you're, scratch, you know, verifying and validating John's, you know, information. So, the main thing is you're creating a winning combination. And I, I just very impressed the knowledge that both of you seem to have. Mm -hmm. well, thank, thank you, sir. So John, you want to wrap us up with anything that, that maybe I've missed? I see Francis back on here with us. So uh, you want to make well, a Just to say, Jeff, you're, you, you know, that, that you've been a great interviewer. The nice thing about it is, is you're a perfect example. Hi, Judy, hi, Princess, mm -hmm. of the people that I have to deal with on a day, daily basis. It, when, when I'm watching this, the nice thing about watching is I can see, see your, your expression and how you feel about the information and how I explain it. And this is what I have to do because it's very difficult as you get to a higher level professional, which I certainly believe you are, being able to explain something without <laughs> trying to make it a mystery. You know, sometimes somebody explains it purposely to make it a mystery. I need to be smarter. No, I need to bring the answer so it's understood. So, you know, listening and watching you today during the interview was uh, very enlightening, and I appreciate it. Well, I, you talk in my language. I work <laughs> off the KISS theory. Keep it simple, <laughs> stupid, because I am stupid. I mean, I need it down to where yeah. I can put it in, in my little pea brain and rationalize yeah. it out. And a lot of this stuff that I saw and what I'm hearing is when I work with Junior Johnson, yeah, we yeah. talk about carburetors and stuff like that right there. We had a big old wooden box right outside the dining room. It was full of carburetors. 
because he'd get a wild idea and said, well, I'm going to drill a hole here and see what it does. <laughs> and, and, you know, that's the way they did it back in those days. And right, you know, right. it, they only had certain things they could do. And here you come along and you say, okay, wait, wait a minute, we're going to fix something that could be very simple. You know, right. it, it's, I was looking at him. I'm going to digress here real quick. I'll get, I'll get done, Francis. I've got a Model 8, belongs to my daddy. It's got an old Zenith one single barrel carburetor in it. And, and it's, you know, it's fuel and air mixture. But from, from that little creation right there to where you've got stuff today and all the horsepower and all the stuff that you can make is, to me, is mind-blowing. It really is. It's been a pleasure. It really has, gentlemen. Thank you, Jeff. Thank you very much. Thank you, Jeff. Th thank you very much, uh, both of you, uh, for joining us today. Uh, I know Judy was excited to, uh, uh, you know, get you on board, John, and uh, and that was an important one. So, everyone, uh, the webinar has been recorded, so it will be posted on the ePortrait platform within a couple hours, as well as on YouTube. We'll share it with you guys, and uh, next week we will be back here at nine o'clock Pacific. We're going to get uh, uh, the great people from Reed Rocker Arms, Judy, correct? Yeah, yeah. And, uh, and so this is going to be another uh, tech webinar on engine parts. And we're approaching number 100. So we'll have something special in the upcoming weeks. So stay with us. Again, thank you very much for uh, joining you, us today. Thank you, You're welcome, Judy. And any of the unanswered questions that want to be answered, they can just send them to me either message or through the email for the business, and I gladly answer that. Absolutely. And then uh, we're going to push your products back to the homepage of ePortrait, John. So uh, each and every one, go on ePortrait.com. You'll see uh, uh, them best product right there. Click on it, and I will connect you as well directly to, uh, to John and, and the team over there. Thank you very much, gentlemen. And uh, we'll see you again soon, John, uh, Jeff. Thank you. Have a All great day. Thank you. Y'all have a great one. Thanks. Thanks, Bye. Jeff. Bye-bye. Thanks, Bye. Katie. Judy. Bye.